hear me. А вы что, собираетесь на ней жениться? Да. Ух, красота-то какая. Лепота. Таможня дает добро. И вообще не называй меня, пожалуйста, Вероника. Кто я? Вот кто я? Отныне русские земля единый быть. Hi, my name's Ali, and this is the Rus Files Unite podcast, where we watch Russian films and films with a Russian connection. As always, I'm joined by a guest, and today my guest is Tracy. Hi, Tracy. Hello. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining me. No problem. So, before we talk about the film we're going to be watching today, uh, could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Okay, um, I'm an English major. I'm from New York. Um, my experience is mostly with British literature. I started actually getting more into Russian literature in the past year, but uh, most people probably know me as a Jane Austen fan. That's um, really my primary interest and where a lot of my attention goes. But I, I try to spread my interest around a little bit. I'm you know, into period drama in general, which is usually what people think of when they think of me. So, <laughs> And that's probably what you know people would know me from if you asked them about what my interests are. Sure. In fact, um, for uh, the listeners, the, I was aware of Tracy first from her appearance on Falling in Love montage, where uh, she's kind of their official Jane Austen correspondent at this point. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm a I'm a big Jane Austen fan myself, so I'm kind of predisposed to like anyone who thinks that Jane Austen is great. So, yes, <laughs> very happy to have a fellow Jane fan or a Miss Austin fan. I don't know how she would feel about me referring to her as Jane as we're not acquainted. Uh, <laughs> uh, laughing at my own jokes, that always bodes well. <laughs> But yeah, I, I specifically had you on for the film that we're watching today because it's, a, as you mentioned, you're a you're particularly a, a period uh, drama fan. Um, so let's talk about that a bit. Um, what are your favorite period dramas um i like i said i am a jane austen fan i love um the 1995 sense sensibility that's probably my favorite movie um my favorite show is a little bit out of the way it's a world war ii drama called um home fires it unfortunately got canceled in the uk but it's about a group of women in a village and it, how they deal with you know their sons their husbands going off to war and you know the work they do with the women's institute it deals with a lot of things like illiteracy domestic abuse you know a lot of these issues that happened on the home front and it was you know very interesting very emotional oftentimes with the way that it deals with the men going to war but um 
Yeah, and recently, last year, was when I got into War and Peace because of the musical Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, which was when I read the novel War and Peace. I also saw the musical about four times, and when I read the novel, it was I used to refer to it as living with War and Peace as I was working at it for several months, and I felt at the end like I knew these characters, so that also ended up becoming a favorite, actually. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's just, I mean, it's very cliched to call it an epic s- story, but just having a backdrop like the Napoleonic Wars is kind of like, it's 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 just a it's just a massive canvas, and it's just really skillful how he weaves the personal stuff in with this this huge thing going on behind over a number of years. Yeah, it, but it is reading the thing is a bit of a, a slog and probably shouldn't be attempted <laughs> attempted to. <laughs> lightly but yeah what did you say the the um world war ii drama was called home fires yes yeah that sounds really interesting i i totally missed that but i i'll want to check that out because i really enjoy world war ii stuff but it's nearly always about the the men at the front so it's it'd be cool to see the other side of it yeah my interest was always more the home front than the battles so i tend to gravitate towards you know those sorts of stories so that show came along and it was basically everything i had always been interested in so it's it's a good one but it sort of flew under the radar which is sadly why it got cancelled <laughs> yeah um so slightly ch- uh switching uh tack changing tack tacking something um <laughs> uh have you seen any russian movies um, I haven't. I don't think so. I, I've seen, I think, a bit of, like, German, Danish, but I can't recall. Oh, um, no, I have. Um, there was one a couple years ago, um, called Farewell. It was a Russian spy drama, oh, okay. and I think that might be the only one that I'm familiar with. But, um, it was something that came to the art cinema that I, I live near on Long Island, and it was, um, yeah, I think that's the only Russian I can remember, but other than that, the only things that are coming to mind are German. Okay. Yeah. So, oh, uh, good to be introducing you to some some stuff kind of outside your normal, like, uh, I guess stuff that you would watch, maybe. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, the thing that we're going to be watching today is called Sibirsky Cyrulnik, or Okay. The uh, the Barber of Siberia t- tends to be translated, and it's directed by Nikita Mikhalkov, who is kind of this huge figure of Russian cinema and acting. He's been around for a very long time. He was born in 1945, so I guess he's like 70-odd now. But um, he's Oscar-winning. He, he got an Oscar for um, Burnt by the Sun, for which won in 1995 um and he's been nominated uh for best foreign language picture several times um uh outside of that including 12 which was an adaptation or like russian reworking of 12 angry men um okay. and another one called close to eden and this one it's it's kind of funny this one was going to be russia's submission for the 1999 oscars but they got their application in slightly too late so it was disqualified (laughs) so russia had no submission that year because they didn't get their act together (laughs) which 
Yeah, sometimes with Russian bureaucratic practices that I encountered when I was living in Moscow, that doesn't entirely surprise me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's um, I don't know very much about this at all, to be honest, going in. I'm. Had you heard of it before? No, and I was a little surprised when I looked it up, um, since I, I know Richard Harris and Julia Armand, and I wouldn't expect to see them in a Russian film, just um, especially Richard Harris, knowing that he's British. Mm. And I know that um, there was a Ralph Fiennes movie, uh, Rafe Fiennes, I think is actually how they say that, uh, yep. <laughs> about two years ago, uh, two women, and I know that he they initially made this big deal out of him speaking Russian for the film, and then last year I found out that they ended up dubbing him over with a Russian actor, because I guess him speaking Russian didn't go over so well. Oh, I didn't know <laughs> and... that. Yeah, that movie was on my radar of things to watch, but yeah, I haven't seen it, so I kind of think if I had seen it and not known that it was dubbed into Russian, I'd be like... Wow, he's really good. <laughs> I thought that myself when I, and you know, I put it on my list because I was like, wow, Ray Fine speaking Russian, like this will be interesting. And then I found out they dubbed him over. I was like, oh, I guess that didn't happen. It's like, but, <laughs> but he doesn't even sound like him a bit. Yeah. <laughs> well, turns out there's a reason for that. Yeah, I was sort of wondering how this is going to be with, you know, these actors that I predominantly know for speaking English, you know, in a Russian-speaking movie, I guess we'll find out, <laughs> or they'll be speaking English, but... <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's the latter, in that this... I could be totally wrong, so we'll find out, but I think certainly Julia Ormond's character is... I, I don't know, she may be she may be American, in fact, but, but she's certainly not Russian, and I know that there's a fair or at least I think I know that a fair bit of the movie is is in English. So it's kind of like a slightly unusual sort of crossover two cultures meeting kind of movie. At least that's what I guess the hearsay or what I think mm -hmm. I found out about about watching <laughs> the movie is. So yeah. It it will be interesting if most of the movie is in English as the <laughs> since I live in New York I had to get the um a DVD that I could play on my DVD player and a, the copy I got is all regions rather than, you know, just region 1 and the DVD menu is quite Russian as in I had a bit of a time figuring out how to even work it as I couldn't read any of the menus. So <laughs> I will be very happy if most of the film is in English as the menu was decidedly not. <laughs> yes, fun fun with Cyrillic. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> even the even the box was, you know, I turned it over. I was like, there is no English on this DVD box. And so... <laughs> so it's not like I can even read the blurb to find out what it... Yeah. <laughs> like, I sure hope they sent the right movie. But <laughs> fortunately, I know that is the case. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, what movie were you watching? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, I feel like we should probably um, go off and watch the film. But okay. um, as someone who's heard, like, one or two of these uh, episodes before, you'll probably know what's coming. Um, <laughs> this is where I get to uh, uh, make you speak some Russian. <laughs> so the, the phrase that we say is Payekhali. So one, two, three. Payakhali! 
and we're back. Uh, Tracy and I have just watched The Barber of Siberia. And before we tell you what we thought, Tracy's just going to give us a quick summary of the plot, which might be a bit of a feat as it's nearly a three-hour movie. But uh, yes, condense away. So we start in 1905 in Massachusetts, and we have a woman writing a letter to... um, her son who's in the army and we see her son in the army and um, he's getting his hair trimmed and there's a picture of Mozart up in the um, the tent where they're getting their hair trimmed and the commander is um, asking them why would they have a picture of Mozart up in the tent and uh, the one who's getting his hair trimmed sort of humiliates him by saying oh you know Mozart was a composer as if he didn't know so he makes everyone put on their gas masks which is apparently an anachronism because IMDb says they didn't start using those until the first world war I did wonder um, about that (laughs) yes yeah until about like 10 years later so bad I was like oh that's interesting so they put on their gas masks and he's told that he can't take it off until he admits that like Mozart is a hack and he won't do it and that ends up being a, a thread throughout the rest of the film is continually coming back and he still hasn't taken off the gas mask and he still won't admit that Mozart is a hack but then we go to 1885 Russia where um, the woman we saw writing the letter is getting off the train and she's going to help um, McCracken I think his name was yeah uh, that's the one yeah Richard Harris's character um, who's trying to develop this steam engine that he calls the Barber of Siberia because it will cut down all of the trees in um, Siberia much faster and she is that's a lot of trees after all yeah <laughs> maybe a very wealthy man if he can get that working and um she's his daughter and she's hoping to uh make a deal that uh with the general whose approval he needs to get the steam engine to go forward but on the way uh in the train she's met this young man named tolstoy who's a cadet in a specific regiment and they they hit it off he breaks her fan and he wants to repair it for her and they have a, a nice moment together so it sort of ends up being a love triangle between this general that she's trying to seduce her and tolstoy and the complications that arise from that <laughs> yeah and that's um and that's the and that's the film it's yeah, fantastic compression there. <laughs> um, yeah, it's 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 pretty epic. Um, what did you What did you think? Did you like it? Let's let's start off with that. Yeah, I, it was it was different than what I was normally seeing, and I I think because I'm I'm used to either you know series that tend to be about you know especially with British series tend to be about like maybe six hours long, and then you have movies that are usually like two hours long. So this was sort of like squarely in the middle of being around like three hours. So that sort of epic length was new to me because I haven't you know I haven't watched many of like the older classic films that are that length, and then most of the modern ones that I've seen of that length they're very like genre like you've got your Lord of the Rings and those sorts of movies. So this was different for me to see a, a period epic which I'm sure actually surprises a lot of people but some of the um, the filmmaking like the strange close-ups were, <laughs> were a little bit much for me but overall I thought it was it was definitely interesting and not something I was used to seeing interesting is always good I mean I was I was really impressed by the by the production values like I've written down here words like lavish and sumptuous and 
opulent and splendor and all that sort of thing. It's it's a very nice film to look at. Yeah, my mother and I always wonder sometimes when you know she'll sit down and watch one of these things with me. When you look at the the houses that they have to get, and then you know things like the old trains, you know, and vehicles that they need, and you know especially set pieces like the the fair that they go to. It must take an incredible amount of time to design a lot of this period detail, not to mention the costumes. <laughs> yeah, and especially this is made in probably like 19... I think it came out in 98, so it would be made, you know, 96, 97... You can't just you can't just CGI a nice crowd scene. Yeah. It's kind of like if you if you want if you want that scale, you have to you know corral all of these extras and have all the costumes and and all that stuff. It's more of an undertaking, I guess. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things with old, older movies just always impresses me, like the length that you had to go to to achieve some of those effects. I mean, not wishing to you know downplay the immense amount of skill it takes with a computer to make that stuff look look real but yeah there's something about having to do things in real life as it were yeah it always impresses me staying on the the topic of russian film I, I haven't seen it yet but since i mentioned having read war and peace last year i was looking into watching the actual russian film version that was done by um i think sergey bondage Bondarchuk is the name. Yeah, and, yeah, Bondarchuk. Yeah, and I know that it's it's another that's definitely like three or four hours, and I know that they actually had to obviously have actual you know extras for the the battle scenes, and just reading about the sheer number of extras and the amount of work it must have taken is incredible, and it's no wonder that the that the film took I think several years to get made. But <laughs> yeah, do you know what I? Th- I I may be mistaken about this and, you know, someone can write in and correct me, but I think it may even be six or seven hours. Like, it's, you know... It is entirely possible. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there is a lot of story, yeah. uh, you know. Yeah, with with War and Peace, it's, it's a bit like a bit like Lord of the Rings. It's not that you don't have enough material. It's just like <laughs> how do, how do you yeah cut it down in such a way? Um, yeah. Um, so you said it's kind of been a surprise that it's slightly different in terms of just length for this genre of of film. Yeah. Was there anything else that that kind of struck you as like not what you expected going in i think just some of the some of the humor of it was very interesting to me because people have this idea that you know period dramas are so staid and repressed that you know i i found it really delightful um there's this whole bit about the the cadets are waxing the floors for this ballroom and just in in the beginning when they're looking at the wax and they're reading off the label and it says like wax surprise for like these these elegant balls and then it becomes this whole plot point that they've you know waxed the floors so brilliantly and everybody is you know slipping and sliding like it was a skating rink and you know that's not something... yeah yeah someone calls it a skating rink at one point yeah and it's it's just not something you're used to you know seeing or thinking about when it comes to these productions so that was definitely a, a very welcome surprise was that it, it could be very lighthearted parts which was good because it gets more serious later on but... oh it, it, it gets very heavy but yeah. i mean the first the first I would say almost like hour plus, the tone is primarily comic. I mean, you do have a terrorist attack. (laughs) That was a surprise. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because it has been so comic until like, 
I guess the terrorist attack is what, like 15, 20 minutes in? Yeah. Memory serves. And yeah, that comes kind of out of nowhere. I mean, you <laughs> see that it's going to happen just before it happens. You see some people doing some suspicious stuff and you're like, oh, something is afoot here. <laughs> um, but but yeah, and then it goes back to being kind of ridiculous and, and, and comical. Um, but yeah, then it gets into some some really heavy stuff. I'm I'm sorry, I had no idea that that was <laughs> that was coming up. So um, yeah, people should be aware that like rape slash um, yeah, child grooming yeah. was a, a plot aspect that I was sort of not expecting, and when it showed up, thankfully it was no. just you know mentioned. But I was like, wow, that's quite horrifying. So <laughs> yeah, and and you find that. Um, that underneath Julia Ormond's character, Jane's, you know, well, it turns out to be facade of, you know, extreme confidence and self-assuredness, she kind of hates herself because of what's happened to her, and that's really upsetting. Yeah, I I sort of wondered, because in the beginning when they, they joined her in a train car, I, I was almost wondering if she was, you know, a courtesan or something, and I said to myself, oh, she's not, and then as it turned out, yes, she sort of was, and, you know, had unfortunately been, you know, used um, as, you know, not not really sex work, but, you know, had been abused by her, sec- uh, her stepfather in her past, and it was just yeah. this very, you know, deeply sad revelation especially watching you know the the way in which it affects her to have opened up to someone about that and yeah it was it was definitely extremely well acted especially the the scene where she where she confesses to him was really really something yeah yeah it was very affecting I, i i wrote it down but i don't know if i've got it exactly perfect but um uh she says something which might sound a bit trite just out of context but she says something like um no one ever had any, any use, use for my heart. For my yeah, heart. I wrote that down as uh, well. Yeah, it's like, oh my goodness. That, <laughs> that, yeah, um, doesn't make you feel very good about um, males in general. Yeah, uh, that somebody could have got to be, you know, in their in their mid twenties and just think like, yep, half of the species just awful. Yeah. Uh, and not to be trusted but yeah. yeah which you know if something like that happens to you it's not really surprising but uh, yeah um so that's something to be to be aware of um i think i w- i was also glad that the film was very kind to her almost in that regard because she has this moment where because of what she's been through she expects tolstoy to just want sex from her and she goes and sits on his bed and presumably you know undresses some she's able to get redressed fairly quickly so i assume she wasn't entirely naked but you don't even see any of that it's just she's positioned just off camera and all you see is tolstoy's face as he looks at her and i yeah you hear kind of shuffling noises and it's kind of like is she undressing is that what's going on and then she says uh is this your bed and and you can like, oh right, yes, that is what she's yeah. doing. Yeah. And it it was just so interesting to me the way the film just completely sidestepped that nudity and it, it gives some of the power to her in a way by focusing, you know, it's it's sort of male gaze, but it's not male gaze in the way that we're looking at her body. It's we're looking at him looking at her. 
And I just thought that was very interesting because, you know, I'm used to seeing American films where, you know, the nudity would just be on full display, especially if it's female nudity as as opposed to male nudity, which you don't see as much. So that was also very interesting. Well, and to be fair, non, non-English language films have a bit of a reputation. You know, if you say, oh, it's a European <laughs> art house film, you go, oh, right. So there are boobs. <laughs> Yeah, and even um, when I was in the West End, when I was a teenager, I saw Cabaret on stage, and the very stark difference between Cabaret on stage and when I later saw it on Broadway was, yes, there were performers that were fully nude at several <laughs> several points. You're using the word stark advisedly. <laughs> it, was, it was very different, and of course, when I saw it on Broadway, I was like, oh, this is not the fully nude production that I sometimes saw when I was in the West End. Yeah. <laughs> so... Oh wow! Yes, uh, yeah, I'd heard that that cabaret, um, yes, on stage these days is not what it is in the film. Not that I've seen the film, but yes, I can't imagine like a nineteen seventy one film of cabaret <laughs> is going to be like. Here is ev- all of everyone, um, <laughs> but yes, yeah, I, I, yeah, totally take your take your point. It is is yeah, kind to her in 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 that moment, and I kind of felt like I don't know, maybe this is having having watched it in two sittings but i feel like the film's better that first couple of hours and it kind of loses its way a bit towards the end yeah i definitely felt like the the pacing was a little bit odd because Mm. you spend so much time in that that build up to the action of you know what happens to tolstoy that eventually you know gets him banned and sent away and then after he's sent away it's sort of crammed into i think only about a half an hour yeah of you know what really happens and i was like that was an awful lot of build up towards you know like a, a very like big inciting incident that we're told is going to like shape the plot and then it's just you know and things that you would think would be dwelt on a little bit more really aren't and so that was yeah, definitely yeah. something that probably could have been smoothed out a bit more. <laughs> um, what did you think of the portrayal of uh, Russians as people and Russia as a place? I was actually very surprised that the film is fairly critical of Russia, especially sort of the Russian military establishment mm. through Jane, because her focus in writing to this um, this boy that we find out is her son by Tolstoy, um, in, rather than her son by McCracken, is... Um, is just very, you know, wanting him to avoid, you know, these missteps that the the Russian military made. And, you know, overall, we see that they're, they're fairly human in treating, you know, the cadets as, you know, boys, they get to, you know, have fun, they have this performance of, you know, the marriage of Figaro. But, you know, they still, there's always this risk of, you know, court martial, they avoid it once after they've had a duel. But of course, it ends up, you know, being a reality for him when he makes an assassination attempt, a very ill advised one. But I was just I was very surprised that they were very frequently having her voice concerns that um, she says at one point, can it be true that human life means nothing in this country? And that really stood out to me because it was it seemed very sharply critical, which is not something I would expect from a film actually made in that country. And and the retort is is something like uh, it depends on whose life it is, which is. Yeah. 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 Which I I felt like that was one of uh, several different instances where the filmmakers were kind of saying yeah i we we know this is sort of how we we're perceived um yeah 
And I think that comes through in the, the depiction of the military, too, especially in a scene where the, the czar is speaking to the, the gathered cadets and he's saying, you know, the Russian soldier is brave, upstanding and patient. And that's why he's invincible. And you just get this very, you know, clear sense of what they're trying to instill in these boys. And I thought that was very interesting, yeah. especially because you also have the presence of a child character that, you know, his um, his wife, it's it's later said that it's his nephew. It's not his son. And um, but his wife is is very critical of the fact that he's having a young child at these proceedings being exposed to this you know not even military action but just the presence of the military and what that stands for and you can tell that she's very uneasy about that and would rather that a child not be exposed to that whereas the men sort of think nothing of it and i also found that very interesting yeah well there's a really um quite shocking line there that the tsar says to the uh, to to his wife um he says something like, uh, "Well, if I'd listened to you, we wouldn't we wouldn't have any children anyway." Yeah, and that's sort of like presented almost like as a throwaway or a joke, but like it's actually very cruel, and I, that was also very surprising. <laughs> the yeah. implication being like, you have never consented to, uh, yeah, <laughs> to sleeping with me, and it's like. <laughs> Oh gosh! Um, inc- incidentally, did you realise that um, that the Tsar was was played by the director Nikita Mikhalkov? I had read that in um, I believe in IMDb, and I thought that was very interesting. And I I know you said in the um, the prior film in Malcolm's episode he was also a, I think a lead actor, so I I knew that he was yeah an actor. Yeah, yeah 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 he was um, Sir Henry Sir Henry Baskerville yeah yes uh, this much more of a of a cameo appearance and it's difficult to read what his portrayal um not what his portrayal but what he's getting at with the characterization because on the one hand he's this kind of strict disciplinarian guy but he's you know about having these really strong upstanding values but he's cruel and cold to to his wife and you know i don't know whether that joke is meant to be like ha ha funny or like <laughs> oh that's gross yeah you know, totally deadpan played and um i mean the real tsar uh, alexander the third was not a very nice guy he was he was very um kind of as the film suggests tough and uncompromising and militaristic i mean you know his his own father had been blown up by uh, anarchist terrorists so that kind of partly explains why he cracked down <laughs> Yeah. Um and as we see in this film it was it was not necessarily a um you know a, I don't know how to put this. Um that was something you had to consider all the time as as the the ruling family of of, of Russia at that point was that yeah that there were people out there who were trying to kill you. Yeah. Um was this doesn't necessarily um... make for good decision making or yeah was this before the romanovs or uh, i think it was before yeah this is um well actually um alexander is nicholas the second's dad so he's the second from last tsar yeah and the picking of 1905 for some of the other well the kind of the setup and you know the returning scenes is quite a significant one as that's when russia had its pre-revolution the revolution okay. didn't take yeah so i wondered whether they set it in 1905 rather than you know 1904 or 1906 as yeah. a as a kind of like a 
a, a marker of you know stuff was afoot, even though they don't depict anything anything from that. Yeah, I would I would definitely imagine so. Usually, when they pick these things, it's it's very deliberate. It's something that just comes to mind because recently I was at a a screening of Call Me by Your Name where they spoke to the the author of the book that the film was based on, and he he spoke for quite some time about how the um, he had set the film the book in a more like amorphous eighties period, but the mm. movie was very specific about the year in the 80s it picked because he wanted they wanted to capture a very specific political time in Italy and that sounds mm. very similar to what you're saying of what they may have been aiming at here so yeah just kind of like implying that in in the background or or, or whatever yeah um I, I in terms of the depiction of Russia sometimes I found that it was a bit like it was a bit overly playing into the stereotypes which is kind of like you'd expect it if it was being made by a western film but there was there were certain things that were a bit kind of seemed a bit kitschy to me <laughs> yeah i think especially the like the character going on a bender at one point which we i think it's called a zapoy when it's just yes know, <laughs> which is which is a russian word i didn't actually know and i feel ashamed <laughs> for not knowing this as i feel like it's a word i should I should be aware of. But, yeah, just yeah, just the the vodka, you know, bender, and then um, especially the, it's it's funny because having read War and Peace, there were certain things they like they mention a, a policeman being tied to a chair at one point, and in the beginning of War and Peace, there's actually a policeman tied to a bear, and I have my notes yeah. like, oh, if only they had said a policeman tied to a bear, but there were yeah, there were definitely things that were sort of echoes that I recognized from the other you know Russian things that I had been exposed to, so that's definitely you know interesting that they were sort of playing into those stereotypes. Yeah, and a lot of Russia's most famous literature is from roughly uh, that uh, that time that time period. And initially, when they mentioned that the main uh, male character's name was Tolstoy, I was kind of like, I was rolling my eyes. I was like, <laughs> really, really? But then they make that joke like three or four yeah. times throughout the runtime, like like the author. Yes, yes, like the author. No relation, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, different different iterations of, of that joke. So it's kind of like they realised that they were making a cheesy choice, but then that, but they at least you know acknowledge it and don't pretend like it's oh we just picked this. It's just a common Russian name, you know. Yeah, they um, they committed to the choice that they made. Yeah, and yeah, which is which is good. It's sort of especially interesting considering you were saying that you know it almost made it as the representative film for the entire country in the Academy Awards. That to think that instead of something that you know maybe presented a more like nuanced view, it almost played into the the very broad stereotypes that we would expect. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is kind of. It is kind of weird. And and as you say, it it was it was slightly more in some regards more critical yeah. of, of Russia as a place than you might expect you know now in the you know the Putin era <laughs> um then again if you've seen Leviathan um mm-hmm. oh that's on that's on my list I did hear about that when it was in um the cinema here so I'll have to check yeah. it out and we've and we've covered Loveless by the same director on this podcast, and that's not exactly painting a particularly <laughs> rosy picture. So you know they 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 don't mind showing the place in in not the most positive of lights, which I suspect happened a lot less during during Soviet times. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, what did you think of the? We've we've talked a bit about Mikhail Kov and his very short appearance, but. <laughs> In terms of the other the other performances, how how did you feel about those? 
Um, as I said, I, I was very impressed with Julia Ormond. I'm most I'm familiar with her from other films, but not you know too many. I think um, some other period work that she's done and other things here and there. The um, the young man that played Tolstoy was a, a, sometimes a little bit you know exaggerated, but I I think mm. it really sort of worked for him. But um, Julia Ormond was definitely the the standout for me. There was a, a scene in particular that I found really affecting where. Um, after Andre is um, has been arrested for the assassination attempt that he makes on um, the the general that's been you know vying for her affections, yeah. even though she's been quite clear to him that it's a charade and it's you know something that she's doing to get the job done that she needs to have done, he's um, she goes to his mother in particular and is you know begging him to uh, begging her to write to the the um, the czar I believe to get you know sort of if not like a stay of execution just to to hope that they would be more lenient in the sentencing and the mother of course has no idea who she is because you know his her son has sort of been you know consorting with her by you know going out with her and sort of seeing her more or less in secret and yeah. in her own quarters and she basically just says to her you know who are you and Jane realizes that she has no claim that she can really explicate on Andre and she ends up having to say that she's no one and to sort of you know back away and just the the look on her face and some of the acting she was doing that moment was incredibly heartbreaking and it's just a I feel like it's a very hard moment to play without exaggerating it too much and I felt Mm. that Julia Ramon did a really great job with that and it's kind of a doubling of that of that scene because just before that she's gone to I think it's to the like the prison or the prison barracks or something like that and has had a very similar conversation with the guard. Yeah. And it's almost like you kind of think, oh, that's a bit repetitive. Is that not redundant? But it's kind of like, I don't know, it just hammers it home further when she does it with this stranger to doing with having that conversation with with uh, Andre's mother as you say it's it's really it's really well well done and i just really i love her poise at the beginning when she just has this carriage full of really boisterous <laughs> russian soldiers and she doesn't you know she has a few words of russian at that time but she's not if if she's intimidated at all she doesn't show it cuz she's just totally in command of that of that situation and yeah you can definitely see why uh, andre and uh, takes a shine to her because yeah she's just incredibly like winsome and impressive yes yeah, especially because we later learn that she does have such reason to fear and mistrust men the fact that she's so in command of a group of several of them who are quite drunk is very you know very impressive yeah. and just you know it, it speaks to how you know capable of an actress she is that you see that she's been hired at all to do this you know deal that needs to go forward from a kraken and you know just learning sort of the depth of the way that she's had to deceive everyone puts you know a lot of the things you see early in the film in a, a very different light and it just makes her really fascinating to watch yeah it's a shame she's not in more recently i was just going through imdb listings and it seems like in the i guess the 90s was sort of her film like heyday but i guess that's just you know the dynamics of hollywood casting etc etc now that she's no no longer like a gorgeous 20 slash early 30 something <laughs> Yeah, I'd definitely like to see her in more in more stuff. I think that's kind of it as far as, far as the the performancey stuff. Yeah. Um, was there anything else that, that you um, wanted to wanted to bring up? 
I think the one thing I thought was very interesting was I, I had to look up The Marriage of Figaro because I, I wasn't very familiar with it. But in looking it up, I found that it was a continuation of The Barber of Seville, which um, having mentioned this movie to my mother, she asked me what the name of it was. And, the, and I said, you know, are you thinking of The Barber of Seville? Because that's what I was thinking of, too. And she said, yes. And I realized, you know, in seeing that they were, you know, using a specific piece that was a follow on to The Barber of Seville, that they were obviously being very deliberate in their references, you know, in, in making you know the pun of the barber of siberia for this machine yeah. that's going to cut down trees versus you know this opera that's a continuation of the barber of seville so i i thought that was very interesting i'm always sort of interested in the the intertextuality of how these things you know come up and are played with so that was definitely a, a very interesting recurring theme as well as you know the um Apparently the plot of The Marriage of Figaro revolves around this man that's in power feeling that he has the right to sleep with, you know, a, a servant woman that, you know, is working under his uh, under his estate. So just thinking, and they sort of quote a line or two that really brings that to the forefront, that it's this powerful man that feels that he has a right to this woman, which is obviously the position that Jane is in having to seduce the general. So I thought that the way that they used that as an intertext was very interesting as well. Oh, that's cool. Because I, yeah, I, I noticed that they mentioned very briefly the 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 Barber of Seville very early on. But yeah, I wasn't uh, I wasn't aware of that kind of um, linking of the of the of the plot lines. Um, I thought the general was an interesting character actually because I, for a while, I felt kind of sorry for him just in the sense of like, you know, he's this. Yes, he is very powerful and important. But you feel sorry for somebody just being a bit clueless and not just, you know, maybe you should be interested in someone a bit closer to your age, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> um, which, you know, sorry, is very judgmental on, on my part. But it's kind of like just the, the you know, in, initially anyway, it doesn't it doesn't read as as this sort of very confident. Well, of course, she would love me. He's quite he's quite tentative, but it, it, it's it's only when he realizes that. You know he has he has a rival that he just totally loses it. I also feel sorry for him with the with the alcoholism thing because yeah. clearly he tries to say no to J to Jane, kind of like trying to push alcohol on it on him, and he's just like no no no, you know please don't. And he's kind of he's trying to get out of it, but it's too polite to say, um, you know, just flat out seriously, I have a problem. Don't try and make me drink. Um, <laughs> Because that's, that's a you know super embarrassing position to uh, to be in, and then yeah, once he's had once he's had one, it's it's the you know the the classic you know he is now he is now on a on a bender or a zapoy as we learned. Um, Especially because it's played so much for comedy when really like falling off the wagon is is actually quite serious. You know? Horrible, yeah, yeah. I didn't know how to feel about that actually yeah. because it is it is funny, but yeah, but yeah, when you think about the real life implications it's, <laughs> it's, it's, and the and the bit where he stuffs the glass into his mouth and you're like you're gonna hurt yourself this yeah. is horrible <laughs> i i felt um, the same about the the cadets you know smashing all the the glasses after the, they've you know had the drink at the assembly and it was you know I, I knew that was a thing in russia but you know just seeing the sheer number of people throwing their glasses to the ground i was like oh that must be so like dangerous and horrible <laughs> yeah yeah um that's going to be really fun for somebody to clear up. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't even aware particularly of that being a 
being a, a tradition, it may be something that's just kind of older or just <laughs> just not the people I was hanging out with when I was when I was out there. Um, yeah, the, some some of the stuff with the with the cadets, I I have I, I've just written this down as like a just a placeholder because I haven't I haven't even seen this movie, but um, Animal House just. <laughs> Which I haven't seen, I just kind of know the reputation, but the cadets do get up to a lot of crazy antics, let's call them. Yeah, I was even just surprised at sort of the, the amount of things that they were doing, especially the, the marriage of Figaro, because because I'm coming from, you know, a Jane Austen background, this is obviously about, you know, 70, 80 years later than what she was depicting, but mm. there's such a, a strong component in Mansfield Park in particular that acting is sort of frowned upon as immoral. And mm. so to see that the men are, you know, encouraged not only to act, but to cross-dress, is, it was very interesting to me in that they're, you know, in this sort of very, you know, what would be probably considered a, a feminine, you know, artistic pursuit is, you know, singing opera. And to see that that was encouraged and, you know, looked forward to and visited by dignitaries was very interesting to me. <laughs> yeah, it's quite surprising. I mean, I don't really know very much about theatre in general and you know Russian theatre in particular but I I think I heard that in the 1870s and 80s that in a lot of you know important uh, provincial towns they started having their own their own theatres and that theatre was really kind of taking off as a um, of a form of entertainment you know across Russia at that point I think it had there had been theatre before but I think it was more concentrated in in the two capitals, um, Moscow and Saint and Saint Petersburg, so so it it may just be a, ref- a reflection of that. Yeah, and I I know that they were in Moscow at least, so it was definitely you know some place where they they were that that would make sense that that was something that they would be doing. Yeah, uh, speaking of of the of the setting, that was it definitely had a as somebody who's lived there a slightly travelogy feel. <laughs> um, you know, I was just kind of noting down the places i mean obviously they do the they do the kremlin uh quite a bit mm-hmm. um there's there's one thing that looks slightly dodgy actually they have um the uh, cathedral of christ the savior which was which was actually built in uh the victorian era but was blown up by the soviets mm-hmm. and i was trying to work out whether it had been fully rebuilt by that point because the few shots they have of it looked a bit like it was a matte painting or something. It just didn't look quite photo <laughs> real. Yeah. And, but I was also scrutinising it harder because I, <laughs> I was kind of like, this was made at a time when I don't know whether they'd finished rebuilding it. So I was looking at it more carefully than I would have been. But yes, that's kind of a very nerdy little uh, detail. Um, <laughs> but they also have um, Novodevici um monastery which is you know quite a famous um landmark i think that that's in the background for the the maslinitsa or the um um it's kind of like russian mardi gras mm-hmm. um sequences and there's another one which uh which really stood out to me because i used to live near there they they go past the church of the ascension which is this kind of odd looking quite angular church that they pass by i think on a on a sledge but it, it is like it is kind of all of the famous landmarks almost in, in, in moscow so so in that regard it's you know it falls prey slightly to the you know 
um you know sometimes when uh, films are set in a very specific place you kind of feel like you have to hit all of those landmarks to go look and now it's here so yeah, yeah. and especially when there was such an you know an early emphasis on you know the, the train pulling out into the snow i'm thinking of you know like all of the, the russian literature that i've been exposed to you know there's always trains and there's always snow and i was like you know this is sort of <laughs> yes. this is sort of like exactly what i expect <laughs> Yeah, and they had quite a nice shot of her looking out of the train wi- uh, window into the into the forest, but you're also getting her her reflection in yeah. the um, in the window at the same time, which is kind of like it's very showy and it's very stylized. But I I, I did quite like that just as a as an image. That's something I feel like that will that will stay that will stay with me. Um, yeah, it was it was really a beautiful shot, and they they really lingered on it and took their time with it, and I think it's a, a very interesting introduction to her character. Yeah, yeah, because it sort of gives you this sense of her reflecting on the place that she's in, but also on herself and her place in this place, I guess. And really, the the role that she's meant to play, because I something that had caught at me really early on was when she gets off the train and she, you know, meets with Richard Harris. Is she's um, really going through this, you know, performance? And he asks about, you know, her husband, and she tells this, you know, story of saying like, oh, he, you know, he passed. Didn't I write to you? You know, yes, he was eaten by crocodiles, and you know, all that was left of his was his bow tie. And it's this very, you know, exaggerated story. And I said to myself, you know, of course, you know, she's playing it off. She's making it a joke. And later she says to um, the general that, you know, oh, he died with Custer at Little Bighorn. And I said to myself, you know, obviously there's two different stories there is, you know, saying, oh, he died at Little Bighorn, another lie. And then yeah. you, you realize when, you know, you have the full context that she's someone that's been hired to play this part and do this job, that she was, you know, really just coming up with an act at the train station for the benefit of this person person there that she didn't know and you know was really trying to you know put on that act to sell it and make it believable and i thought that was really interesting that there are some moments with her that when you then have the retrospect of knowing who she is and what she's been through just become really you know interesting to look at again yeah it's it's almost it's not quite this level but it it is almost uh the jokers in the dark night (laughs) do you want to know how i got these scars yeah (laughs) how did my husband die well (laughs) I, I was al- I was almost waiting for there to be like another variation that she told Alexi. <laughs> so. Yeah, and 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 it, I wouldn't have been surprised if it had come up because this this film isn't it certainly isn't one to you know hold back on really selling a joke. Yeah. For, or... <laughs> okay. Cool. I think we've I think we've covered this film like in a quite a bit of uh, of detail. Um, would you recommend this to? to other people who wouldn't normally go in for Russian films, do you think? I think I would certainly recommend it to the people. I I, I obviously have, you know, quite a few fans in the, the period drama sort of niche, and I, I think I would recommend it because, you know, to, to people that are sort of looking for that sort of film in general, because until you told me that you were thinking of, you know, this film for the episode, I hadn't even heard of it, which really surprised me considering, you know, the two people in it that I knew. And... um. 
I think it's just, it's so, you know, out of the way and, you know, it, it does have its flaws. The pacing could have been better, but it, it's just different. And I think it's worth, you know, experiencing at least once just to, you know, see a Russian film made in Russia. And, you know, I think that's sort of, you know, out of the way, I, especially because period drama tends to focus so much on the English that I think that this would be worth experiencing to someone that's looking for something different, especially something about Russia, because, you know, the, the Russian stuff that I'm used to is, you know, more Napoleonic Wars, or in the case of, like, Dr. Zhivago is more towards, like, World War One. So this is sort of, you know, in a different period than you're used to seeing, and I think a different perspective than you're used to seeing. So I think anyone that's willing to try it, I think, would probably find something of value in it. Yeah, it's, it's refreshing for it to be, like, a, a period piece that is non-literary adaptation, yeah, and th- those are very rare. You know, you, you would think that they're not, but, you know, con- reflecting on the the ones that I've seen, they are, by and large, you know, adaptations. So, I guess a lot of that is just the kind of green lighting and, you know, what do you think you can get people to turn up and, uh, and see? Because it was like, oh, yeah, Anna Karenina, I have heard of that. Yeah. Uh, I'll go along and see it. It really tends um, to be a lot of adaptations and biopics really is the... the by and large, the majority of the field. So getting an, an original made is very difficult and always, you know, something that really should be supported and encouraged. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even even if it does turn out being, like, slightly overwrought in places, which which this is. Yeah. Um, I mean, the other thing that I found quite refreshing, and I've not really seen very much of this, is a film that's almost like a 50-50 split in terms of the language. It's It's, you know, it's normally you get it's you know more like 90 10 or something like 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 if you think of something like um lost in translation it's mostly in english with you know incidental japanese kind of around but it's you don't have you don't have much in the way of people conversing with each other um, yeah, or some some films you even just have, you know, 100%. You don't really hear a lot of English. I'm thinking on some of the ones that I've seen in recent years, and I can't really recall many that had, you know, a, a, a lot of English. So there's, you know, you've either got like a 90-10 or you've just got a 100%, you know, completely in the other language. Yeah. So because why would they have any reason to speak English when they're in their home country? So it's just, you know, it was definitely interesting to see a film that was, you know, by and large in English, but also with, you know, the, the cadets tended to be speaking Russian amongst themselves. So... Yeah, although sometimes it was a bit weird they'd be speaking to each other in, in in English. I thought I thought I was slightly suspicious of the extent to which English was spoken well in Russia at that time. I was like, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't buy this because even <laughs> by the time, even by the time I got to live in in Moscow, um, you know, lots of people did speak it very well, but it was very easy to run into somebody who didn't at all. So yeah. Um, and even even the even the general Radloff, who's supposed you know who says I'm bad at this, I need a translator, really kind of doesn't. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I thought that was a bit of a stretch, especially but. because you know for me my my main focal point because it's the longest work I've been exposed to is War and Peace, where it you know tends to just be you know yes I read it in translation, but you know presumably the characters are speaking Russian or they're speaking French, and you know there's and there's something mm. like two I believe two percent of the entire book is in French, 
and you know you have that aspect of it and so you know but it's not like they were speaking english you know at that time it was either you know one or the other so mm-hmm. I, I can and having been in uh montreal where there was you know there was english but it was also by and large friends like i can believe what you're saying that you know there are countries where you go there and you just find people that don't speak english whatsoever or if they do they, they don't speak it terribly well so yeah i mean one of the this is kind of an aside but um the the funny thing was and my russian to this day is not is by no means fantastic <laughs> and get getting rustier by the day but um you had to it was very difficult to convince somebody that that your russian was actually better than their english because they would just assume no there's no way that you could have learned and it's not everyone but it but just if you if you did bump into somebody and they would and they would be speaking to you in very tortuous english uh you know i would say you know i do actually speak russian and they would still like persist sometimes <laughs> it was it was quite frustrating but yeah never mind um but uh, it was also interesting seeing a film that was kind of aimed at two audience two national audiences well, not even two national audiences, but it was aimed at a Russian audience whilst also being aimed at a Western audience at the same time, I felt. Like, it wasn't yeah. being made purely for for one or the other and kind of like, well, you know, if people in the other place like it, then that's fine, but we don't really care. So that was quite interesting. Yeah, especially the, you know, the American side story, which which really doesn't come to much other than being, you know, a framing story for the film. But I think you can tell that that's definitely, you know, there for a reason, especially because it mm. opens the film that, you know, yeah, I, I think yeah. it's to sort of, you know, ground the audience in, you know, something that they're familiar with before putting them into something that they're probably not. Yeah. I mean, I didn't mind the framing device so much but they leaned on it a bit more than they needed to in the in the end point like you have a voiceover um I, this is getting into massive spoiler territory <laughs> um where jane you know goes to see if she can um locate andre in you know after the, his ex you know his many years of exile in siberia it just then spells out all the way that she's feeling and i'm kind of like I don't know this this snob in me is like no she's a good enough a- yeah. actor that you can see <laughs> these things in her face and you can show that you do not have to spell it out for me with this silly voiceover especially when but, you've you've yeah. trusted her with such weighty emotional material earlier in the film and she's proven that she can handle it it was sort of you know that they they drew back at the last second and weren't sure and decided to add in this voiceover yeah so. it's not like oh crap the performances that we've got on tape aren't sufficiently yeah. compelling that we know when you have to kind of yeah yeah or just thinking the audience is probably going to be dumb so we, yeah <laughs> you know, that that's that's kind of slightly how it felt like maybe they won't get it even though they already have had the voiceover like explicating most of the plot so far <laughs> yeah yeah so maybe that i i feel like that's done less these days and it might just be a function of this being like a yeah, it's, it's, it's already. Year, yeah, I was going to say it's already point. almost twenty years old. So I think that that's so, definitely part of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you definitely say you'd recommend it to other period drama fans. But personally, does this make you wanna watch other films by this guy, by Mikhail Kov? 
Yeah, I would definitely be interested in in seeing more of his work. This was interesting. I I think I'd maybe like to see something a little bit shorter. But if 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 all, <laughs> if, all if all of his work is is like this, I would certainly be be interested in in seeking it out and seeing what else that he's done. Because sometimes you know when people make a period drama, it's you know just a one off for them, and you know their other films are very different. So I think I would be interested in seeing you know if what he did was more along these lines, or if he did something you know completely different and this was just like an experiment for him as it sometimes is for some people yeah yeah um i've only seen one of his his other things um and that's the one that he won the um uh, best foreign language film for burnt by the sun and that's that's definitely um that's definitely worth uh, looking out for definitely would recommend that it's also technically a period setting as it's 1930s but it's not you know period setting with a capital p which tends to be like you know victorian or regency is what that tends to read yeah there, there's always debate in the period drama fandom of you know i think right now the, the cutoff tends to be like the 50s or the 60s depending on who you ask but yeah mm, i'm yeah, i'm yeah. really up for anything whenever i watch these <laughs> yeah do do women still wear corsets yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if no this is no longer a period film i don't know i don't know whether that's that's really how it's how it's done oh the yes, discussions I mean. get like very acrimonious very quickly <laughs> okay so. well i will step i'll step uh out of that uh yeah dangerous water as, as you say <laughs> all right so uh, uh before you go tracy is there anything that uh you'd like to direct listeners towards in terms of other things you've done that are out there on the internet um i do have a, a very uh infrequently updated um reviewing blog that i uh for books that i read that i've tried to uh get off the ground again in recent years that's um i'll give you the link to put in the show notes but that's uh pleasure in a good novel dot uh blogspot dot com i believe is the link on that and um as you mentioned i I was on a Falling in Love montage. I did the entirety of their Emma episode as a guest, and then I was on the Clueless episode briefly for about 10 or 15 minutes at the end. And um, I've also been on Assorted Other Podcasts. It's a lot to list, but um, yeah, it's de- it was definitely a lot of fun, and thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been great. Yeah, any time. Definitely have to have you back for, you know, maybe further period dramas or or maybe do something else. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks very much uh, again, and um, that's all for all for today. Dasvidaniya, folks. Thank you. So that's it for this episode, but before I go, I'd like to thank Sasha Ilukovich and the Highly Skilled Migrants for the use of their song Cold in our intro. You can find that song and the rest of their back catalogue on Bandcamp and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting us by leaving a rating at Apple Podcasts or at podchaser.com. That second one, Podchaser, even lets you rate individual episodes, so if this episode particularly stood out to you, you can let other listeners know that you enjoyed it. Recommending the show on social media is hugely helpful as well. If you can spare a moment or two to do that, it would really make my day. Thank you, thank you very much. Speaking of social media... Please find us and say hi on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. You can also drop us a line at roosfilesunite at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. 
take care of yourselves, and bye for now.